and welcome to New Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Grady. This is our first episode back this semester, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you the interesting ideas and engaging arguments of our wonderful staff of writers. This episode, I'll be talking to PhD candidate Carlos Serrano about his recent article on our website regarding global health, international institutions, and the responsibilities of good global governance. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion and Carlos's wonderful optimism on the subject. With all that said, let's jump right in. Hello, and welcome back to New Perspectives. This is your host, Brian Grady, and this week we're going to be discussing issues of global health, pandemics, treaties, and more. Uh, Would my guest like to introduce himself? Yeah. Hello, my name is Carlos Arriaga Serrano from Spain, current first-year PhD student in political science here in Northeastern. Great. Welcome on to the show, Carlos. So recently you wrote an article titled Public Health and Pandemics, the Wake-Up Call for Cooperation regarding the pandemic, various treaties we've had going on related to organizations like the WHO and more. Would you like to discuss that in some depth here? Sure. I mean, in my article, uh, basically, well, first of all, actually, I started writing this piece in the fall of 2020 when I got to Northeastern. Uh, but of course, throughout the year, uh, it has been quite edited and quite changed because of obvious changes that have been going on in the uh, in the area of global health related to COVID-19. And my main argument there is that based on a speech that Obama did on the eve of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, I basically argue that the problem today in COVID-19 is not the institutional infrastructure since there is not really any problems with the World Organization or the CDC, but rather with the actors that are behind it, meaning that there is a lack of leadership in in these institutions and also at the state level. And also there is a lack of an international framework that that helps in that sense to build the guidelines and regulations that will help countries apply uh, better policies in relation to public health and global health. So I guess the first question that jumps to mind then, if the issue is not per se the institutions, but the actors in them, what advice or policy is there to take besides, you know, yelling at these global leaders, do better, you know, these situations are so desperate, show some spines. What's the course of action there? The first course of action has been that it has to be dialogue. So meet, uh, to make these actors basically meet at one place and talk about these issues. For example, I come from Spain, so I come from the context of the European Union. And when the EU was actually dealing with these guidelines and regulations that in the end were passed in 2010, the main problem was actually defining what global health is and what public health is. And I think currently there is not such definition in the international sphere and even at the regional sphere of the EU and other institutions in order to be able to properly tackle this problem. So opening that dialogue and making all the actors sit at the same place to construct a legal body, a legal framework, that should be the first approach. Then the negotiations part happen, and that's a tricky aspect of all these conversations, because coming to agreement is literally the challenge here. And for that is when then you need some countries and some specific individuals to take the leadership on the negotiations. In other areas, the main leader actually has tended to be, well, has tended to be the U.S., we saw that there was quite a lack of leadership with the Trump administration in terms of foreign, foreign affairs and foreign relations. And that was obvious in the sense of like there was not really a major treaty that was signed when Trump was actually in power. And quite the opposite. He actually threatened to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, withdraw from the World Organization. And that lack of leadership was obvious. In my article, I actually argued that for some point uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, China was the one that 
perhaps could take this leadership role on public health and global health with, for example, what I call the mass diplomacy uh, that was actually based on a foreign affairs article, which defined this as the approach that China took in order to, provi to, to uh, provide uh, with materials such as masks and other health-related um, health instruments and mechanisms to southern European countries that were struggling to find them at the moment, at the time, such as Italy or Spain. And that really helped to an extent these countries and also helped to kind of like clean China's image in foreign relations and international relations, but didn't really in the end materialize into uh, an actual leadership to create a legal body or a legal framework that will help these countries coordinate and cooperate together in order to tackle things or like pandemics such as COVID. I think I know your answer, and I think I'm just kind of setting up the T-ball for an easy hit here, but would you describe the U.S.'s leadership issue as just a temporary uh, situation with, obviously, now the Trump administration is in the past? Uh, are we past our lack of global leadership on these issues, or is it more of a, is there still a need for change? I think the next few years are going to be key on to answer that question. I think everyone thought that once Trump was going to be gone from the U.S. administration, the U.S. was going to claim that seat again on global leadership and inter in international relations, particularly in the aspect of diplomacy. But we've seen that the current administration with Biden and Anthony Blinken and the Secretary of State have extended that kind of behavior towards international relations and diplomacy. We've seen very great words coming out of Biden's mouth and other, uh, other international relations and other U.S. Uh, foreign actors' mouths as well meaning that they've said things such as we're going to help the global south distribute vaccines, we're going to take a much deeper role in issues such as climate, even with COVID-19, we're going to donate more money to initiatives such as COVAX in order to be able to address the major problems that international relations have today and the international sphere has today, but we have not seen actions. Now we saw actually Biden speaking the already at the General Assembly and he's the speech was quite optimistic in terms of international relations and cooperation. But until those nice words translate into actions, I think we're just seeing a continuation of what Trump's foreign policy was about, which was about an internal benefits and an internal interest rather than that global interest that perhaps we need now with COVID-19 and climate change. That reminds me, there was a kind of an excerpt I pulled up from your article. There was a quote, member states must outline clear actions in the shape of an international treaty to address this problem, referring to uh, global disease, as has been done for issues like climate change, end quote. And kind of the immediate question that jumps to mind is, but has that worked, though, with climate change? I mean, <laughs> if you look around, it's still uh, not entirely uh, a solid foundation either. The fact that we look today at our sky and we still have the ozone layer intact and actually getting better is a proof that actually things related to climate change have worked. For, and when mentioned, what I refer with this is that in the 80s, the Montreal Protocol was passed in order to stop the depletion of the, of the ozone layer. That was one of the first times in history where 196 states in the UN actually came together in order to be able to pass a treaty that will basically let us stay longer here on this planet. I think now we have a similar situation, although we hadn't seen the effects up until in, well, in, 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 um, up until basically um, new natural disasters and new things have come, come across. The hurricanes that now are intensifying in the Atlantic, the intensive desertification, the lack of rain, extreme droughts, those things are a problem that we face today. And I think the same way in the 80s we came together to stop a problem that could literally eradicate us from, the, from this planet, now we are seeing things that are also intensifying this dialogue and communication. And we saw already in 2015 that that uh, pushed 
for international cooperation and to build this kind of like legal framework that you mentioned was done. Paris Agreement 2015, it happened. Over 190 states ratified. They actually didn't decide to take binding decisions, but they all committed to to national, there's nationally distributed, nationally distributed, nationally determined contributions. That is the that's the term, and they committed to those indices and to basically stop emitting and stop polluting, and start doing things like recycling or incorporating new greener policies in their both economy and also in the generation of energy. So I think that is there and that effort has been done. Now it needs a push, and hopefully now in the conference of Paris is going to take place in October in Glasgow. Do, they will ratify that into a new treaty that will be more ambitious and that perhaps will take some binding options. But I think it's been done in climate. It's just like we don't really tend to pay attention to things like the ozone layer and we tend to like just focus on other aspects such as tsunamis or natural disasters that now are seen again and that is definitely going to make people talk about them and make leaders or put pressures in leaders to take decisions. I guess not to force too much uh, kind of fortune telling looking forward, but if the treaty making of the 80s still led to the amount of climate issues we're seeing now, 30 years on. Uh, obviously, we are still in getting out of the disease, a horrible disease event. Do we need to work on treaties with pandemics and the like now to avoid kind of, again, that 30 year on intensification of a different issue separate from climate, although obviously linked issues? Exactly, yeah. Assuming students are dealing issues. So I think now perhaps we should think about incorporating some of these uh, some of these concerns within public health and in pandemics to even the climate change discourse and the climate change dialogue. Because we see that these pandemics, these viruses intensify due to climate change and due to the, the effects that the humans have been having done here on, on Earth. As to the point of uh, creating that kind of like legal framework in pandemics, I think already Biden as well in his speech mentioned that his point or his one of his goals is going to be to create a financial mechanism. That financial mechanism will help, for example, to distribute vaccines and distribute, distribute more funding towards research, not only in the global north, but also in the global south in order to tackle these future pandemics uh, and viruses in the future. But again, these uh, words are very nice, and this possible cooperation is also very nice on paper. But it has to come into act. It has to, it has to be produced, or like uh, has to come into action, basically. And for that, that leadership is still lacking. And I think that's the main concern that we should have right now. Antonio Guterres, for example, said the same thing the other day in a speech that he was giving at the General Assembly. He said that what we need is basically this multilateralism and also this global leadership as one. And I think right now that global leadership as one is lacking because also other aspects such as the dichotomy that we find now between the US and China in terms of trade, the fact that like the European Union, who was supposed to be the new leader, perhaps as a real institution, was not able to find that spot either because of internal problems that they found themselves with the state of with the rule of, the rule of law and the state in Hungary or Poland. So these actors are struggling, and that's the problem. First, those internal problems have to be fixed in order for these actors to take that more of a global leadership. However, I do have, apart from that, uh, an optimist uh, an optimist vision. And I do think this year is going to be crucial for international cooperation in both the climate and pandemics. In climate, as I said, we have the uh, well, the 26th conference, conference of Paris coming up now in Glasgow. And I do think there is definitely going to be cooperation between all the actors because of things that are happening now inside their, inside their own countries. We saw that, for example, with the, with the hurricanes in Louisiana, in Louisiana, also hurricanes that had even reached 
the Northeast as well that didn't used to happen in the past as often. That's definitely going to be something that is going to be brought up in these discussions, the intensification of, cata of these natural catastrophes. And apart from that, I think another important thing here in terms of health is going to be the fact that now we're seeing that the vaccines have to be distributed. And since they have to be distributed and we need to help the rest of the world to come back to the normality that we had before, I think the this, we're going to see an intensification of this dialogue in terms of pandemics and global health that in this sense, it seems that the U.S. is going to be willing to take that, lead that leadership role that hasn't taken in the past two years. An almost disconcerting element I've noticed as you touch on, you know, kind of the need for the rest of the world to still get out of COVID is that perhaps it can be argued that in some ways the U.S.'s real interest in helping is the increases in prices and scarcity of goods that seems to be increasing as the rest of the world still struggles to recover while we are back to normal, quote unquote, while still, you know, 2,000 deaths a day. Is it is it always going to be a self-interested aspect? Is there a benevolence uh, involved at all? Or is it is it still always going to be interest-based? I mean, AR, that's a very Machiavellian and realist perspective <laughs> right there. I'm more of a constructivist. I believe in, in the building of international norms and social constructions. And I think in the end, yes, it's true that during the pandemic, especially we've seen an increase in nationalism an increase of national interest. I think most states during the pandemic just took a very national approach protecting their own borders, protecting their own people, seeking for vaccines and medical medical tools for their own populations. And that was part of it. And that because of that, we're still living the pandemic. I think if back then the decisions taken by leader, taken by leader, by international leaders would have been different and would have been pushed more towards the international cooperation. Perhaps we were still living under COVID, but definitely more people would be vaccinated and less deaths will have probably happened. As now we actually have reached one, I think four, four million, four and a half million deaths worldwide. So- And that's probably a dramatic undercount. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's definitely something that that national approach is not the solution. That realist approach is not the solution. Because again, now if there is someone still with COVID in the world, uh, that person can perhaps develop it on its own as a new variant that can maybe go through all the new the new vaccines that we develop. So we need to get everyone vaccinated and the cooperation has to come as a one world, one country, well, one, one world, one planet approach. Because if not, we're never gonna get rid, of, get rid of COVID. That happened already in the 80s. In the 80s, we got rid of small, smallpox and it was thanks to that, co that cooperation. And that push for like a world global vaccine campaign that reached every single corner in the world. And that's what we're gonna need to do now. We can definitely uh, try to protect our citizens and as national leaders and protect our economy. But we also need to take into account that we don't live anymore in a post-Westphalian uh, stage where the state is the most important figure. No, now we have a globalized world in super interconnected where the problem on one small country in Eastern Europe can literally affect the entire dynamic of the world. So I think that approach is something that it worked perhaps for the 60s, even 50s still, so to kind of have that interest nationalist approach, uh, well, self-interest national approach, but it doesn't work anymore. Now we have all these global challenges such as pandemics and climate change, even with the, with the common spaces and Antarctica, the space and everything that 
basically affects everybody. And for that, incorporation has to be has to be done. And the only way to do cooperation is through international institutions. And that's why I mean, I'm a main advocate for organizations such as the UN or even the European Union. And that's why I say in my in my article that the problem is not really about the current institution that we have in place. It's about the way those institutions are being handled and, and, and being led as of now. The EU, for example, has the right ideas. They always try to put everyone together and they always try to engage other countries and attempt attempts to help the global south. But unfortunately, we don't have that kind of power internationally and not even the economic means to be able to help as much as other countries such as, such as China or the US. I think those are the two that really need to take much more of a leadership role and they definitely need to be open to cooperate with one another if you want to be able to solve these problems. Interesting, because an element I was pulling on and I was going to ask about from your article is that you mentioned that we, to you know, kind of semi-quote here, is that we can't rely on the leadership of superpowers alone mm -hmm. anymore and that instead uh, regional and or international organizations will be key. You've obviously touched on the international. Yeah. Um, where do regional organizations play in this dichotomy? Because you've just mentioned that China and the U.S. need to play a role, but you've also mentioned that they're kind of caught up in their own disputes the EU is kind of uh, battling itself internally. Are these hegemons really the main method or is regionalism going to be more key? And that's actually something that I still have to answer to myself. Uh, and I think everyone has to answer who's going to be there, who's going to take on this role. But uh, in my article, I agree that because at the time when I started writing the article and everything, it was a time where the EU was the, actually the only actor that was taking a leadership role. Think about the fact that when I wrote this article, Trump was still in office. Oh, I'm all aware. Uh, <laughs> so uh, basically, back then, still the EU seemed that was going to be the one taking the leadership. However, I think this year I've become more, more skeptic, uh, skeptic, and not because of the EU not being the proper organization, but because I do understand that we still need, we do need these, uh, well, like I would call them global hegemons, to help. And the reason why is because, for example, in terms of climate change, the U.S. and China are the, the most emitters in terms of like gases that, that actually put us in the situation that we're today. And if they don't commit to these international goals, then we're not going to be able to go anywhere. The U.S. has the good, the good words and they actually have the good actions as well. But I don't think we have that uh, power in terms of economic power and also in terms of diplomatic power to be able to convince other actors to act the same way. I do still think, though, that regionalism is the answer because... I think that the, these problems have to be first addressed at the regional level before going into global level. However, the only problem here is as of now, the only real institution, regional institution that actually has an effective semi-federal, you can call it, body, and that actually has binding decisions that their member states have to follow is the European Union. We do have other institutions such as ASEAN in Southeast Asia the African Union in Africa, who tried actually to model itself after the European Union, although it was created by Gaddafi, so that's another another matter of discussion. And we also have even institutions in America, such as the Organization of American States, that perhaps don't play a major role in terms of like decision making, but do play a role in terms of diplomacy and opening the dialogue between countries. So I think by opening the discussions at these regional institutions, we do actually help to perhaps address regional issues that then later can translate to a broader audience at the global level. The problem right now, as I said, is those institutions are not necessarily in place. We only have the EU or the American, American States or ASEAN that actually are effective regional organizations, but they do focus on very different things. The EU in terms of decisions, uh, OAS, the OAS in terms of diplomacy, and ASEAN mainly on economic terms. So if we manage to get these institutions to work more on a political level, 
on a decision-making level, such as model after the European Union, I think then decisions can be taken easier at the global level later. Because I think now we're aiming to, again, to that kind of like post-Westphalian system where states were taking the decisions, but I think we need combinations of states to be taking these future decisions. This is something that is very utopian because I don't think it's gonna be able to materialize itself in some areas where like conflict is very prominent or where there are a lot of interest. And I think here it is where the global north definitely has to take more of a leadership role and perhaps get more involved through diplomacy and not through troops as we've seen in the past in order to be able to come to help these, these uh, regional institutions to become more effective in their own continents. Where does the private sector fit into these issues? Because one of the things you mentioned is that obviously there's a need to expand scientific information sharing. Um, and, you know, what came to mind is obviously the limitations that are placed on vaccine information sharing during the stages where they're being developed. Um, and then later, once they were, it was a very big headline when it was, you know, suggested that China might have taken some vaccine uh, information early on when they were still trying to figure out how to make one. And of course, the question that came to mind is like, wait, they're helping, they're getting something that will help less people die? I, I fail to see the issue here, you know, immediately. It's like, I feel like that only affects somebody's stock price. So where do private actors fit in these questions of uh, international organizations, disease resiliency, because they have their interests at play? Yeah, I mean, let's look at a public-private partnership initiative, which was COVAX. COVAX had the right idea. It was basically having state leadership that will be able to perhaps bring that political spectrum and policy making into the formula. And then the private sector, that has the money. And the point with this was that countries will be able to politically discuss how to distribute vaccines with the private sector money and also how to investigate and do research on vaccines once they're done and then to create them in order to be able to distribute them. However, COVAX, which in my opinion was going to be, uh, I thought it was going to be the solution for to like to basically like eradicate this pandemic that we have this virus that we're dealing with failed because different interests of states in the end do play, did play a role in this institution. And we saw that something that was not supposed to be political and was supposed to be kind of more altruistic and help everybody across the world at the same rate in an equity level did not happen. They did manage to develop the vaccine. They did manage to distribute it to countries that perhaps wouldn't have gotten the vaccine otherwise, but they did not distribute as many. For example, Africa has over a billion inhabitants. And as of now, I think between two and 3% of their population have been fully vaccinated, which is a super low rate, as opposed to what the COVAX will have done. However, here in the US, we're talking about perhaps getting a third dose of the vaccine before even we distribute this first dose to countries such as India or Brazil that struggle with COVID-19 today. So I think now these public-private partnerships are starting to shape, and I think that's why COVAX failed, because I think it's something that is being very new, but it's true that already into the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals, the goal number 17 was that of partnership, and that partnership also involved the private sector. And I think nobody should fool themselves and believe that states and international organizations without the private sector can reach anywhere, because the means, both economic and technologically, are right now in the private sector. And we need to count on them to be able to also tackle these issues with technology maybe that can, uh, to an extent, not necessarily stop, but at least mitigate the effects of climate change. Or with these funds that perhaps can push for more research that will tackle these viruses, the new pandemics that will arise. So 
I do think we need to come with the private sector, and the private sector has to have a seat on these institutions as well. But maybe not necessarily in the General Assembly of the United Nations, but maybe in a new committee or in bilateral talks or multilateral talks, including them on the table in order to discuss funds and initiatives that can help everybody. Now is a tricky situation because we see that public-private partnerships tend to also not be as effective as effective as they should, but I think that's going to be the future. The private sector is going to have to get involved, and if they don't get involved, I mean, it also plays against them because in the end, we're all being affected by this. And I don't think companies such as Pfizer or Moderna not necessarily not necessarily only want to become the beneficiaries of producing the vaccines, but it's also, oh, I hope it should be in their interest as well to eradicate the disease so everybody actually can come back to the normal life that we had before 2020. So obviously you've made these arguments about how institutions need improvement, they need better leadership, um, but the, the institutions themselves are sound. Do you think there has been the organizational learning, um, assuming the leadership starts you know, stepping up, that an incident like the past year will be unlikely in the future if we are we've learned our lesson and we are on the right path or does there need to be strong action to prevent something like this from happening again in our lifetimes so answering your question i think we've learned i think we've learned because we've realized that by taking national self-interest approach we don't solve the problem spain for example spain we're a country that lives off tourism that lives of that tertiary sector people coming into our country so taking the decision of closing our borders and not let tourists come in, into our, our country and enjoy our cities and enjoy our, our basically like our tertiary sector and services was not the right approach because still we had we were one of the countries that was hit the most by COVID-19. We did not have an effective uh, way to tackle it in, interna- in, in our national level. And it also really made our economy we, be much worse off than it was in 2019 and 2020. So we basically did almost everything wrong. We did not solve the problem by taking that self-interest national approach. However, then when the negotiations started more at the regional level and within the, United, within the European Union framework, and we finally were able to pass that COVID fund that took actually for months to develop, we were actually helped. And at least even though we still had that kind of like border situation still to figure out, although now where is actually fully open, we were able to help those people that suffered the most during the pandemic and the was the most vulnerable, economically speaking and socially speaking. But that was when cooperation started to happen. The same thing I think applies to the world. I think we cannot just take that national approach that we took during the pandemic because it doesn't solve the problems. We need to cooperate, we need to talk to one another and we need to figure out a way internationally or regionally that, tackle, that can tackle these issues. We've learned that national approach don't help. They don't help economy, they don't help the cases either. We've learned as well, I believe, that we need to rely more on, the, on those international institutions because sometimes countries such as mine, such as other even in the Global South as well, don't have that perhaps institutional infrastructure or resource infrastructure to be able to help their citizens. So we need to rely on one another to be able to get out of this because it's in the interest of everybody to come back to the normal life, but also in the future to be able to not have as many casualties that we're having today and not to see the things that we see, for example, today in India happening. That cooperation has to happen because it affects everybody at the same rate. And I do think for that, the only way of doing it is actually to create treaties and norms things that do shape this cooperation and that give some guideline for future actions to be taken. The World Organization is great and perhaps promoting uh, the measures that we need to take. 
wearing a mask on. Maybe reaching even with some material and some sort of funds that get from other countries to the global south, but it's not enough. For that, what we need is perhaps to create an international treaty that will establish how these funds have to be distributed what countries will be in charge of giving funds, giving money, a proportional system of, of financial mechanism that will help to tackle the pandemic and future pandemics at the same level and at the same time in every single part of the world. And that's the global north, global south dichotomy that we see today with the vaccines, but with other things as well, that right now we see that we live in two different worlds. The Western countries are the ones that are like getting out of the, of the pandemic, but we still see that the, the global south is still struggling with it. And that's not in the benefit for, for anybody. That applies to climate change, that applies to security, that applies even to the issue of artificial intelligence and its regulation in the future. So many issues that just need international cooperation and that need norms and regulations to be set in place. Well, Carlos, I want to thank you for your time. This has been a very interesting interview and you, uh, your work is very intriguing in this area. Is there anything else you want to mention on this subject? Anything you want to promote or discuss on the side here? I mean, the only thing I would say is that right now, we definitely live in a different world than the one we lived in 2019 and the beginning of 2020, where we see all the dynamics in international relations changing from literally week to week. We saw now the issue with the diplomacy issue, with the diplomatic issue with France and the US. We've seen that as well within the European Union, as I mentioned earlier, with the violation of human rights in Hungary and Poland. All these little things affect how international relations are gonna be shaped. But the main thing, is that now we're actually coming together. Finally, here at the General Assembly in New York, we're gonna come together in a, few, in a month in the Conference of Paris uh, in Glasgow. And those situations of leader states and global leaders coming together are the perfect opportunity for diplomacy and for dialogue to be to open and for everybody to realize that now we cannot look at problems at with a national, with a national interest mindset, but with an international mindset in order to tackle these global issues. And I do think it's gonna happen. And I think we have the right institutions in place, as I mentioned. I think we just need those leaders to come. And as you mentioned, the private sector, I also think the citizens are gonna have a major advocacy role on the future to come. We saw Greta Thunberg on climate change. We just perhaps need another Greta Thunberg for like global health and pandemics. But I do think they definitely do raise more concerns and they do bring the discourse for the people to be talking about these things and to put pressure on these leaders that are going to be taking the decisions. But I'm optimistic. I think everything in the end is going to come to be because we have to make it come to be. Uh, you know, otherwise, we'll probably have to leave this planet in the next hundred years. And I think frameworks such as the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals that were created in 2015 do set these patterns and guidelines of cooperation that needs to be pushed to actual action. Well, Carlos, I envy your optimism. And once again, uh, thank you for coming on. It was a very interesting discussion. Thank you, Brian. Thank you all for listening to this week's New Perspectives. Once again, I'd like to thank Carlos Serrano for joining me on this episode. As always, I direct you to our website, nupoliticalreview.com to read the work of our writers. If you'd like to submit an article to the site or magazine, that's where you'll find out how. If you've written an article at Nooper and would like to talk about it on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Slack anytime. Once again, thanks for listening and have a great day.